Welcome to our special Ask the Horse Live from the 2017 Pony Club Festival at the Kentucky Horse Park in Lexington. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse, your guide to equine healthcare. Each month we connect with veterinarians and industry experts to bring you free Ask the Horse Lives on various horse care topics online. Today is special. Uh, it is the first time we've done an Ask the Horse Live with an in-person audience in addition to our online audience. We're excited all of you have joined us. This afternoon, we are going to be discussing caring for your mature Pony Club mount. Whether you were in Pony Club or are in Pony Club like our audience members are here, or you were in 4-H or a lesson program, most of us have known these older campaigners, the ones that bring multiple kids up through the levels. They're smart, they are mostly trustworthy, and they are excellent teachers. They also have aging bodies that we need to take care of. To help us learn to better care for our mature mounts, we have been joined today by two veterinarians, Dr. Ashley Embley of Rudin Riddle Equine Hospital and Dr. Nathan Slovis of Haggard Equine Medical Institute. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Dr. Embley, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your interest in Pony Club and caring for these special ponies and horses? Um, yes, well, I grew up pony clubbing. I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. I was an HA in the Pony Club, and um, I have a little girl. She's 10, and she is currently a D3 in the Keeneland Pony Club. So um, I think that Pony Club is good because it teaches you more about the horse than just riding. I think that's probably the thing that I took away from it the most is just, I think it teaches a responsibility to the horse and the animal. Also, you know, things like tack and um, just being a well-rounded horse person. And um, so I think it's a great organization and that is my primary focus now, of course, is keeping these horses going so they can go out and, and do their job. Um, I primarily do sport horses, so hunters, jumpers, eventers, driving, vaulting, polo, race horses. So I deal with performance horses primarily in my practice. Okay. And Dr. Slovis, can you tell us about your experience and interest in helping maintain these pony club horses? Absolutely. I'm a uh, graduate C3 from St. Margaret's Pony Club. That's out in uh, Annapolis, Maryland region. And uh, with that, my brother and sister also did the pony club. And back in those days, which is quite a while ago, um, to prove to my parents that we were dedicated to Pony Club and to horses, we had one horse to share between three of us. And it was a Morgan, and uh, 12 years old. And that Morgan, when we went to combine events or what have you at that time, it had to go through three rounds, because my brother, sister, and myself, that includes cross country, name it, and you would never be able to do that nowadays. But back then we were, and that horse took us and then showed our, my uh, parents that yes, we're dedicated. And that's when we started growing our uh, herd from there. Uh, so all my siblings and my, uh, my parents, we all rode. And then uh, from there, what I, what I really learned about with Pony Club really helped with their independence. You know, we know because you let the kids be their own. It's not the parents rooting them on. It's not the parents cleaning the tack, cleaning the horse. And that was really good for, for myself. It just gained that independence. It's showing I could do it on my own, as, along with my peers, be it no down, be it what have you. It just really helped, uh, you know, to, to mature. And you don't see that a lot of times at these other events. The parents are doing every, everything, it seems like. Times have changed, but Pony Club still is their grassroots. You know, independence, letting the children do it. You know, learn on their own, learn from their mistakes. And that's what really helped me go. And also, to be a vet, you don't have to be an A Pony Clubber. You don't have to be an you know, HA. Just have the dedication, time, and you know, put in that extra effort and you can get there. Well, I want to thank both of you guys for joining us uh, on your Saturdays here at festival. Okay, so I was talking to my coworkers earlier and I was saying that I was going to try to use my riding instructor voice. Am I doing okay for our audience here? Everyone can hear us? Okay, good, great. For those of you who are listening online and are familiar with our Ask the Horse Live format, things are going to run a little differently today. We'll be dividing our time between questions from the Pony Club kids and parents that are here uh, and the volunteers. Uh, we are also going to be answering your online questions and questions that were submitted during registration. Uh, 
If you're listening online and have questions you'd like to ask or would like a clarification on a response, you can enter that in the chat window in front of you and we'll read your questions for the doctors. For those of you who are here in person, uh, go ahead and form a line right here next to me uh, and I'll bring a mic to you so that you can ask your question directly. Okay, let's go ahead and get started with questions that were submitted. And this one's for Dr. Embley. It's Karen in Nampa, Idaho, and she wants to know if joint supplements for horses really work. So I gave you the, I gave you the, the, the big question. Well, I think that, you know, I would have to say that primarily a large portion of my clientele, you know, use jump joint supplements and I guess what I have to go on is what they tell me and the feedback they tell me and the results that we see from the horses that, that we put on these supplements. Um, you know, I have given horses things, you know, when they're going, going to jump a Grand Prix and then have the rider come back and say to me, what'd you give them tonight? Because they were amazing. So, and, and that's the feedback I have. I personally prefer the injectable um, over the oral supplements just because I feel like I know they're getting them. I'm putting it straight in the vein or straight in the muscle and I feel like they're getting it. Whereas the feed throughs, I personally don't like as much because of, you know, the acid in the stomach. And yes, there are products that say they add this to, you know, coat it and keep it from, you, you know, being damaged in the stomach. But I just personally have seen better results with the population of horses that I treat with the, you know, monthly injectables or the injectables that you, that we will sometimes do more than that, you know, if a horse is out competing on a really hard schedule. So Dr. Embley, can you uh, mention to us some of the, or for us, some of the, the different ingredients that we might find in joint supplements, whether you're doing the injectable so, or the oral? So that can range widely mm -hmm. too. I mean, really widely, depending, I mean, there are hundreds of products out there and it goes from, you know, everything from, you know, your scientific things like your glycosaminoglycans all the way to, you know, things that are found in plants, you know, herbs and, you know, you'll find natural um, things that are also supposed to reduce joint inflammation. Okay. Do we have any questions to follow up on that from our audience here at festival? Great. And if you could tell us your name and where you're from. Shelly from Wisconsin. So just on the oral versus the injectable, um, we've used both with our horse and we found that doing the oral daily seems to just be more of a steady input rather than having it wear off as the injectables do. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think that's, I mean, I think that's probably fine. And I think, again, it can be very horse specific. I'll, I think that you find things that work and sometimes you have to play around with things for a certain horse. Um, because it changes all the time. I always tell people just a little bit different subject, but IRAP, which, you know, we use in joints sometimes, um, you can, which we spin down from the horse's blood and then inject it in a joint. And I feel like horses, they either love IRAP and they are amazing on it. Or sometimes it's like you put water in the joint and they're like, did you treat me? Because each horse has a very specific response. So I think that's good if you've played around with it and you found that your horse does well on the daily, then that might be what works for him. And Dr. Embley, we have a question from our online audience uh, that was submitted that's along these same lines. Janet wants to know, how do you feel about hawk injections and Adequan for a pony who has had EPM? If they have been given, or if they are given, what precautions should be taken? She says, my pony is on Equiox. Uh, we do not show and only jump two feet and do some trail riding. So I think that um, both of those are fine for a horse that's had EPM. I don't think there's anything that you really need to be concerned about. I think that you need to do, you know, it, those if they're warranted. So if the pony is sore, if your vet has come out, you need to have your veterinarian come, take a look at the pony, jog it for soundness, flex it, make sure if, and you know, if it's lame, block it to the hawks. And if that's what needs to be treated, then yeah, that's totally okay. And personally, I love Adequan. I think it's a great product and use a ton of it. Okay. 
Dr. Slovis, our next question is for you. It's from Kate in Virginia. And Kate has an older horse that just won't put on weight. Uh, she says that uh, the horse's teeth have been checked, they've checked the horse for internal parasites, gastric ulcers, and none of those are issues. The horse has been on good quality pasture around the clock. What can cause the older horse to not hold their weight, and what suggestions do you have for helping that horse out? No, that's an excellent question. And you notice in her, her response, she said, you know, she deworms the horse regularly because he's geriatric horses. When we're talking about geriatric, you've got to determine what age is geriatric. Some people, some veterinary reports say greater than 15. You know, some people say 20. You know, there isn't any veterinary standard out there that says what's geriatric. But if you look at horses in their late teens, early 20s, they're going to have usually higher fecal egg counts, a majority of these animals, because your immune system, there's wear and tear you know, that occurs as you age, just with a any mammal. So, and you need your immune system to help clear parasites. That's a great thing when she was talking about she deworms regularly. But the main thing is she deworms regularly, you also need to be doing some fecal egg counts, making sure your wormers are appropriate. In this area, and unfortunately just in anywhere when it comes to dewormings, it's out of veterinary control. So people just pick their own programs, and there's no rhyme or reason. And there's some education behind that with looking at fecal egg counts. So first I would suggest, just because you have a good deworming program, is it the appropriate one? So you do with some fecal egg counts, take a look, and you can talk to your veterinarians about what cutoffs are for different, between the roundworms. An adult horse should not have roundworms. Your immune system should get rid of it. By the time animals are six months of age, these foals, they'll be able to get rid of, majority of animals that are not stressed should be able to get rid of majority of their uh, uh, roundworms. But you know, you're talking about the strong giles, et cetera, that have some problems with. So that's one thing. The next thing is when she's talking about not gaining weight and she says she's on a proper diet, is you know, having your veterinarian assistants look at that diet with you to see what they're exactly on. Is it okay? And uh, veterinarians, it's part of our service, it's part of our well being exam for your horse. Don't feel ashamed to call us. Let us help educate you. You know, we are trained in that to a point in veterinary school, and some of it's experience too. Let us help you out in that. And most importantly, they can have a hormone or endocrine disorder. You guys ever heard of a disease called Cushing's? You know, uh, and again, not every Cushing horse is fat. You know, you think, oh, Cushing's are fat, you know, no problem. No, there's other things going on. So you need to be looking at, at that aspect too, and if there's any sort of endocrine disease. So those are the way I would be approaching it at first. At the same time, you can do some blood workup, blood evaluations. Is the liver okay? The kidneys okay? Is this animal aging and having some subclinical hepatitis? There are some viral hepatitises that you'll hear about more and more as the research goes on to Cornell that is hitting these horses and can you know put a little spin on them in regards to weight loss, et cetera. That's how I would approach that first, just my three things off the top of my head. So you mentioned Cushing's or PPID, uh, and that those horses often get a, get a little rounder. Um, but what are some signs that your horse, if your horse is getting thin, what would be the clinical signs that Cushing's might be an issue? And what can you do for that horse to make sure that, that yeah. that's what's going on with the horse? Excellent question. So PPID, PARS, intermediate dysfunction. Um, so what we end up doing from there is a lot of your horses can have a longer hair coat, not shedding appropriately, but the kicker is this. If your horse is malnourished and is cachectic, which means it's very thin, extremely thin, sometimes they won't lose their hair just because they're in a state of negative energy balance. So sometimes people see that and confuse it with Cushing's disease. But you're looking at infections that don't make any sense. A hoof abscess that isn't going away like it should, and then you take care of it. Next thing you know, you have a sinus problem, you have chronic nasal discharge, you know, little things like that. It just doesn't make any sense. Uh, sometimes you can have sweating issues with these animals. A lot of times they're going to be a little more lethargic than they used to be. These are very subclinical, you know, minor clinical signs you'll see. If you start seeing a hair coat, usually you're behind the eight ball. What I mean hair coat is that the hair coat's long, not shedding. You know, you, you know that's, you practically don't even need a test for that. You know, that's pretty much what you have going on. But for subclinical things, if you just got some vague signs, your veterinarian can do a test. There's some blood tests they can do and look at it. They have what normals are. Depends on the season of the year, what the normal values are, but they can look at that and help, help you. 
So has anyone here in our in-person audience managed a horse with cushions or PPID? Yeah, we have, we have a few hands. And we have someone who has a question. Come on up. Tell us your name and where you're from. Chris Llewellyn from Quilcene, Washington, out on the Olympic Peninsula. Um, I run a, a boarding stable and an organic farm, and I have several very senior citizens, one of whom is a pony club horse who's in his early 30s. He's still doing pony club, but he, we have a lot of trouble keeping weight on him. We've had the blood work done, his liver functions, all this thing is all right. Um, we've had him tested for Cushing's. His teeth seem okay. He can eat grass, but he can't eat hay. And so what we're feeding him right now is one two-quart scoop of beet pulp, eight quarts of Timothy pellets, and I've recently added a quart of alfalfa pellets twice a day that fills a five-gallon bucket. But it's so expensive, and I'm wondering, and, sometimes, and we put corn oil in it, and he seems to maintain as long as he's on pasture. But that's a lot of calories, and I, he hasn't um, gotten sick from it, but I'm wondering what else you might suggest. Dr. Slovis? So pretty much, just to reiterate, you're feeding eight quarts of Timothy pellets, you're feeding two times a day, and, and what's, this, what's the other concentrate, what's the concentrate? Your bee pulp. Okay. So she said four quarts twice a day. All right, and, and then at, at this time, you feel like um, your geriatric horse, can you notice the ribs or is it, when, when you look at them, can you, can you lightly, when you lightly palpate them or, or you know, rub His on them? His ribs show, he looks healthy, he acts healthy, he's still uh, packing a D2 pony clubber around. That's great. And, and then you said on pasture, that's where you notice, you know, you need to have the pasture, like, do you have winters that he cannot be accessed to good forage, and then he starts losing the weight then? Or yeah, well, what I'm wondering is, they've, it seems like nutritionists have changed their tune on alfalfa a little bit, and he seems to be able to eat the buds off the alfalfa. I tried teff hay; he loved it, but he, he, you know, sometimes makes the big wads with it. And I'm trying to looking ahead to fall coming. Um, wondering what we can feed him. And I have another senior horse, too, over the winter. I can put them on grass, but as you know, Washington can be wet, and um, the pastures just aren't as nutritious in the winter. He goes out almost every day because he has to have grass. But. Sure, sure. And then, and then, well, some of these animals that are, th that are this difficult to maintain, it sounds like you're doing a great job. So it sounds like the main thing is just the expense. What, more, what else is there out there that may be a cheaper version to maintain them? Is that pretty much your main well, we question? stay away from the sweet feeds. I, I have mixed emotions about that. And I, I can get um, bulk. We can make, mix our own cob. We have a, a, a man who grows wheat, barley, uh, oats, and rolls it and so I can give him but I haven't been giving him any of that because he has had mild laminitis but it hasn't I don't think it's been from feed it's been from fever or something a, an allergy or something but he can be seems to be able to be out on grass it's it's a tricky dance these old guys <laughs> yeah because an average horse should get about 16 you know what you're looking at is about 16,000 calories a day so you gotta start looking at your calories. About a pound of, of Timothy hay. Now we gotta see what your quarts are. You know, about a pound is roughly, I'm um, using just top of the head, 600 to 800 calories per pound. Uh, you're looking at your bee pulp or any of your sweet feeds. It could be roughly 1,000 to 1,200 calories per pound. So we gotta start looking at what your you know, nutrition needs are. A lot of these equine senior diets very easily digestible, maybe something else you can look into. There's so many different senior feeds that are out there. Purina's done more research than most anybody. That's a good feed, but it is quite expensive. It's not gonna be cheap, you, you know. recommended Albers senior feed just because it was lower in sugar? Well, some things, if you're worried about sugar, 
you can always uh, soak your hay. You soak your hay, you, you'll get the, you get the, uh, um, you know, m most of the absorbable sugars out of your hay if you're concerned here. But it sounds like your guy, not known as laminitis situation, if you don't think it's because of the feed, you know, a lot of these hays, Timothy hay, should be safe. You can give them a little alfalfa. And it's not going to be, I would not make alfalfa more than 25% of my diet. And you're, you're going to have to work with your veterinarian. Bee pulp, that's okay. Uh, but if you're looking for calories, you know, bee pulp can put a lot of strain on your hind gut. You, you know, you want something more, you know, that's going to put it into your hind gut, and that's going to be your, what I mean hind gut is your colon, and your colon is your fermentation vac, and that's where you can get, you know, that puts a lot of strain on there. Maybe you want to put some more effort onto your small intestine, because your hay and your bee pulp is going to really push that hind gut. Maybe you want to get some sort of concentrate that can be absorbed much easier in your small intestine. So you put a lot of work on that colon, and there's only so much calories you can get from there than from your, some of your cereal grains or pelleted feeds and you'll be able to get from your small intestine. Uh, again, rice bran, there's uh, uh, a company around here, you can look it on up, uh, Macaulay Brothers, that has Omega bran. There's a variety of different things that you can top dress beyond your corn oil that can be safe and add in another one or 2,000 calories. An animal that's a picky eater, doesn't sound like yours is, but there are a lot of different situations there you can try. So that's just food for thought. And you can talk to your veterinarian, talk to your nutritionist. Okay, so we'll, we'll ask. Okay, sorry, sorry. Louder, yes. I, I got a soft voice, so if you cannot hear me, thank you for telling me. But another big thing is um, when it comes to your veterinarian, ask them, ask the nutritionist, you want something that can be easily digestible or more of a load on your small intestine. Not that you want to take the load off your hind gut at all, but it looks like you're really hitting your hind gut pretty hard. Let's make it easier. That's why you got your small intestine. Let's utilize that. If you're, if you're not talking in the microphone, you're not broadcasting. Sorry. We've always soaked his hay. Um, so I'll just follow your directions yeah, yeah, and so, see what so, we so, can. So soaking hay, it's great. It's going to take some of your sugars away. It will uh -huh. lower, lower some of the calories. And that's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with soaking your hay. But let's try to look at something that's safe for the foregut, is equine uh -huh. senior type feeds that are low starch, it seems to be the big click now, you know, the big yeah. low starch. You know, we gotta be careful what we talk about starches and stuff, but, uh, you know, most of your equine senior feeds, feeds should be appropriate for that horse, and you just gotta figure out a fine balance economically, uh -huh. and at the same time, see what works for you. And consult your veterinarian, consult your feed store. If you got a place that makes your feed, that Albers, or however uh, you pronounce it, They'll know, and your veterinarian will know what kind of calories your horse needs. And let's just look at it on, on a piece of paper. But you think about 60,000 a day? Is no, that no, 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 no. 16,000 calories on an active. Okay. You know, what, what you're describing a horse. And that's just rough uh, uh -huh. idea. I, you know, I'm, I don't know what you're doing, but you can be even, even higher. You know, some, okay. of these, uh, some of these big show horses that are really, you know, these three-day eventers, you know, they're going to be 20,000, 20 plus. This is just a, a rough. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. And for anyone who's listening live or out here in our audience, uh, every Monday on The Horse, we post a nutrition commentary with an equine nutritionist. And it's Dr. Claire Tunes. And she is a, a big time pony clubber. Um, and her daughter's involved in pony club. Um, and she's part of the leadership. So. Uh, I would recommend you check that out too because she, she addresses a lot of these questions as well. Uh, we're going to move on to our next question for Dr. Embley and it's from Justine in Oregon. And Justine wants to know if it's normal for her horse's joints to pop or make noises when ridden. So sometimes they will make a little bit of noise. Like sometimes you will have a little pop or a little squeak and just like, especially these older guys, it takes them a little while sometimes to loosen up. But you know, I would say that if they are consistently making noise every time you go out, I mean, I think you should have your veterinarian go over them and just make sure that everything is good. Um, I, I think one of, you know, the most important things with these geriatric horses is actually 
Exercise, I think, is wonderful for the horse. And I find that the more that they are used and the more that they go, the healthier they stay and the and the better on their joints. I, I always find it interesting. But, you know, in dealing with sport horses, the horses that I have to inject the least are my event horses. I hardly ever. I mean, it's amazing. I've got horses going Rolex that haven't had any work done in a long time. And the horses that I inject the most are my hunters. And I usually attribute that to that the hunters are kept a little chunky. They don't work as hard. They live in a stall a lot of the time. They come out and they go around the ring for a little bit. They jump their jumps and then they go back. And, you know, a lot of the hunters aren't kept super fit. And so when you have this fitness, I, I think it's really good for the horses. And, you know, as long as you keep them moving and, and keep them working, I think they stay much healthier or much longer. You know, the horses who are retired at 15, you know, if you just keep going, sometimes, you know, even if they have to drop down a couple levels, like your 30-year-old horse that you spoke about that's trotting around carrying the d2 around i mean that's perfect for some of these horses to find lower level jobs it's a great thing because they like having a job they like working and um, keeping them moving really does keep their joints in much better shape i've found dr emily do you have any recommendations for warming up the older horse that might have some of that snap crackle pop especially towards the beginning of the ride absolutely and I definitely think too you always have to think about geography and where you live because I will tell you it takes longer to warm up a cold horse than it does a warm horse so literally you know if you live in a really cold area when you get on throw a quarter sheet on throw something to keep their back and top line warm start with a long walk you know, five, 10, 15 minute tack walk before you start trotting, but really use, um, use a proper warm up because it really does help these horses, um, especially the geriatric guys. Dr. Slovis, our next question is for you and it's from Sue in Texas. And Sue wants to know about her horse with PPID. She said that the horse is smaller and that half a percent uh, seems like too large of a pergolide dose. What recommendations do you have for dosing a smaller equid? Well, I guess it's all um, relative what is small, you know. Uh, I mean, I'll have, the main thing is to figure out your doses is you had to diagnose the issue to begin with. And was that with a blood test or is that with physical exam? Is that with the, the characteristic of what the horse looks like? So some of these smaller horses, sometimes they need larger doses just to get them physically sound. When I mean physically sound, they look well. They're not, uh, they're, they're not overweight. Their hair is looking better. They're more active. So what I, what I would end up telling uh, Sue in Texas is that just look at your blood test. Is it doing what it's supposed to do? If it is, then you could possibly back down. You'll be amazed that I've seen these hunter jumpers that have been on four milligrams. That's four times the dose that you should be on. And why did they do it? Well, they said, well, it just didn't look right. Well, you do the blood test, it's fine. Then we start weaning them down. He found out, guess what? You don't need that much. There's probably another re issue going on that you didn't have to use that much pergolide, but they ran right to the pergolide. Same thing with Sue. There isn't anything that I can say in the book. It says, guess what? Anything less than 1,000 pounds gets a half a, half a tablet. Anything greater than 1,000 pounds gets one and a half. Clinical judgment, have your veterinarian help you. And more importantly, you got blood tests. That does the diagnosis. Next, utilize that to figure out, are you on the right dose to begin with? If you are, and you're like, boy, I need to save a little money, you may be able to go down for that smaller horse, lower the dose. But if it's half half a tablet and, and that horse is weighing between five and 700 pounds, you're probably, you're probably okay. Dr. Embley, our next question is for you. It's from Sarah in Virginia. And Sarah says that her horse gets stressed when traveling to competitions. What can she do before or during the trip to make it less stressful for him and help him stay calm once they're on the showgrounds and during competition? So trailering, of course, to the competition is very difficult and, and stressful on a horse. And, you know, I, I guess it depends on does she always go alone? I mean, sometimes you can lower their stress if you if you have a friend that goes to the competition with them. You know, then you also get into sometimes 
in that type situation. They become too good of friends and then you take the friend away and then they lose their mind. So that, you know, you have to use your judgment there. Um, but again, it, it, climate is such an issue. And just like y'all traveling here to Pony Club, like in, it's 96 degrees here in Lexington today. You know, if you're going to put something in the trailer and haul in this heat, you know, depending on how long your haul is, there are things you can do before they get on the trailer. You know, you can have your veterinarian come out for some of these long hauls. We will actually tube with water and electrolytes if your horse doesn't drink in the trailer. Um, you can also run fluids if they're going on a long trek across the country. So those are some things you could do as far as, you know, heat stress and trailering stress, things that might make them feel better when they land at the competition. And then I would just say when they are there, you know, I think the biggest thing to getting your horse to calm down is two things. One, just they have to go out and do it a lot. I mean, truthfully, you have to get them out there. And the more you do this, the more comfortable they're going to become with it. And two is just take every advantage you have at that competition, at that new venue to get your horse accustomed to that place. Because I mean, just speaking from experience of my little girl and, and her ponies, you know, we have one pony that would just get so nervous when it would go to horse shows. So we just started going early. And we'd spend, we'd get a stall and just let the pony sort of live at the horse show. And we would just walk her among, you know, to the horse show, through the rings, feed her treats in different places, but just try and make it as calm as, as we could for her and let her have good experiences by not being in a rush to get there, not being in a rush to get down to the ring, but letting the pony take her time to acclimate to, um, to the venue. Has anyone in our audience here uh, had issues with horses going to new places and being nervous? Anyone? I'm going to raise my hand because I have, I have one of those. Yeah. Uh, if you have any follow-up questions that you want to ask about your horses specifically, we're happy to take those. Um, in the meantime, I'm going to go ahead and give the next question to Dr. Slovis, and it's from Linda in Lakewood, California. And Linda wants to know if a horse can be tested for eyesight issues. How can you tell if your horse can't see very well? That's an excellent question um, that Linda asks. So first of all, you know, part of our veterinary training when uh, you go to vet veterinary school is the use of ophthalmoscope. And so, and also more importantly is let's ask the pertinent questions to the client and we listen to you. What are the concerns? And just by listening to your all's history, we can get an idea, is it really eyesight or is it more of a mental issue? And I kid around with that, but it's, it's serious because a lot of some of the things is just, just the horse. You know, the horse sees something new, unique. It's fight or flight, and a lot of horses aren't going to ask questions. They're going to get the heck out of there. And so when it comes to that, it's just a listen to you all. We use our ophthalmoscope, take a look at those eyes. And at the same time, there are certain things we can do if we're worried about your eyesight. We can look at, at behind, you know, uh, at the eye, look at the retina, and just get an idea, are there any abnormalities there? Is there any paleness? You know, to get some ideas is if you're having some sort of optic nerve injury. And uh, a lot of these older horses, if you ever look at their uh, lens, just as age, we call it nuclear sclerosis. It happens with your dogs too. All of a sudden they look gray, and you're like, well, hold on, there's something wrong with my horse's eye. It looks hazy. It's not moon blindness. it's aging of your lens and that can have some effect it's gonna be the equivalent to almost you guys putting scotch tape on your glasses sunglasses you can still see stuff but it's not as clear that's like me now i gotta wear these reading glasses i had perfect eyesight until i hit 46. but you know things like that can happen with horses too same with their cornea their cornea is always nice and clear well there's cells that age over time that keeps your cornea dehydrated it's like the sub pump in the basement to keep the water out of your basement same thing with your cornea over time, those cells age, and you're gonna start getting the grayness of your cornea. That's just aging. There's only so much you can do about that. So there's some things that we can pick up and we can help you. And also at the same time, we can do sort of tests. It depends on your barn situation, but a hospital situation. We can do little mazes in the dark, in the sun, in the light, put obstacles in the way. Do they step over it? Do they not step over it? Take a cotton ball. We don't take a sheet of paper or a hard object, because a lot of times the horses can hear that going through the air. You take a cotton ball throw it a certain way and just look at their ears. You know, they may not turn their head, but just look at their ears, where they go, one side or the other. You know, stand on the shoulder level of your horse. Don't go in front of your horse. 
and do it. But little things that we can do, tests, is to take a look. And then there's more invasive tests, but these are some simple tests that your veterinarian will be able to do at the farm. So Dr. Slovis, I have an upper level dressage horse who uh, got very spooky and he was kind of known for being spooky, but you know, he knows his job. Um, and so I talked to my vet about it and she looked in his eye and, and he had a cataract in there. So do behavior changes like that uh, indicate that something might be going on with your horse or pony and that you should start that dialogue with your vet to, Ab to look absolutely. for health Any issues? Any sort of odd behavioral issue does not make sense and you've, it's been routine. You know, and it's consistent, you know, if it just happens once, you know, mark it down. If it starts out being consistent, absolutely get your vet involved. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I know it made me feel better to know why he was doing that. Yeah, because if you ever look at your horse's eyes, you ever look at it, I call it the horse's natural sun visor. You know, they're, they're like granules. Some people call it iridic granules or, you know, they're pigmented little protrusions on the iris. Well, over time, wear and tear, sometimes those can be dislodged and start hanging down. And now all of a sudden your horse starts to ride and it starts moving. It's like a, you know, a scary object. And sometimes you gotta get your ophthalmologist to actually move those. And again, there's different things you can do. So again, a little subtle example. You guys won't be able to notice it, but we can as vets. And I've seen that several times in practice. Okay. We have a question from our live audience here at Festival. If you could tell us your name and where you're from. My name's Amy and I'm from Cincinnati. And we have a mare, who, a 13-hand eventy mare who does absolutely fabulous she'll jump well over three feet she'll run and she's extremely athletic so we'll, she sees a trainer every week and one week she'll complete courses and do splendid the next week she shuts down after 10 minutes and then the next week she'll be great and then she'll shut down and we'll drive out there and she refuses to do anything i mean she'll buck and I mean, her, it's this whole behavioral issue that we're having. So we thought, well, she's 20. So we thought, well, could it be her joint? So we put her on joint-wise. Could it be butte? Let's try butte. That, I mean, and she still has, she'll be great, and then she'll be not great. So we're trying to figure out, could this be maybe a sign that she's ready to retire, even though she'll run a field and, and, and um trail ride for miles and I mean what what can you say about that I mean is it just a behavior stubborn issue do you think or Dr. Ambly so I think that anytime you know you have something that you're presented with something like that you do very much like what we were discussing just a second ago you have to find out you know is it a pain or is it behavior or training and believe it us that's a very hard thing to discern sometimes because you just want to say could you just tell me what is bothering you and you know of course they they don't ever answer if so um, <laughs> but you know like I had a dressage horse that again it was he was perfect chill like the laziest fattest happiest quietest carries around you know a little uh, little amateur lady and is perfect well the trainer rides him too and started complaining that the horse you know would randomly spook and it was not him so the very first thing we did was have the ophthalmologist out they looked at the eyes the eyes were fine well we it was very uncharacteristic I said you know maybe like we noticed we'd put him on ulcer guard you know at the horse shows and he seemed to be a little bit better sometimes and it just was not a characteristic horse that you would think about you know having ulcers cleans his feet up quickly as fat as a house is so laid back and we scoped him and he was riddled with ulcers and so that was a diagnosis that you know he had a behavior change and the reason why he was like that was because of ulcers we treated him for a month and actually um put him on reline and he is doing really really well so you know it's one of those things where you definitely should have your veterinarian out if you haven't they should go over the horse they should flex them and make sure that no joint you know is bothering them um, make sure that you mentioned bucking make sure that the back is good make sure you know there's no kissing spine that you have films of the back because um, we'll see that a lot of times but you know I would make sure that you rule out everything else first and make sure that pain is not associated because you may 
mentioned, you know, one week good, one week bad. Well, is that, you know, if you go two days in a row or three days in a row, is it something that, you know, progressively gets worse or, you know, I think you have to play around with that too. Like if you jump her two days in a row, is she worse on the second day or is there absolutely no rhyme or reason to it? No rhyme or reason. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. So I would, if you haven't had your veterinarian come out and go over them, I would definitely have, you know, them come out and check her and see if they can find a reason as to, to why she is behaving like she is. And Dr. Emily, that brings up a really good question that we actually received several questions regarding uh, how do you know when your horse is ready to either back down the levels of what they're doing or that it's time to retire? And, and I think that was, you know, a legitimate question, you know, as well in that, um, you know, because they will sort of tell you. I mean, because unfortunately, that might be their only way to tell you. I mean, I think soundness primarily plays the biggest part in that because there have been, you know, 21-year-old Grand Prix show jumpers. And, I mean, they can still perform. You know, we compete against a little pony who's 26, and he's out there doing the division every weekend, you know, jumping two, three, and it's 12 hands and still going and going strong and winning. So, you know, the horse will tell you a little bit, but first, certainly they have to be sound enough to do their job, and they have to be healthy and look happy. And, you know, if it becomes one of those things where they are going out and they are not performing to the level at which you are used to or accustomed to them performing, you might, and they're getting older, you might think, well, maybe we're starting to ask a little bit much now and maybe, you know, drop down a level. If you're jumping the pony three foot, like try two six for a couple of weeks and see if there's any behavior. And if the pony's perfect at two six, you know, then I think it's reasonable to think maybe it is time that we, you know, back her down a notch. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Embley. We have another question from our live audience here at Pony Club Festival. Can you tell us your name and where you're from? Hi, I'm Brianna from Wisconsin. Um, I have a 16-year-old paint horse, and I recently had some chiropractic work done on him uh, with a veterinarian who also does chiropractic, and she found some main, uh, minor arthritis in his right knee. Um, he has never been lame on it a day in his life, um, and he is on like normal jo joint supplements. But I'm wondering, how do you make the call if it's right to do a joint injection or go on Adequan or something like that? Um, because he's as fit and as good as he's ever been, and I want to be able to keep going um, for quite a, a time as long as we can. So um, is there anything I can do in the way of Adequan or something like that to try and prevent, you know, it getting a lot worse a lot faster? <laughs> Dr. Slovis, do you want to jump in or Dr. Embley? I'll let Dr. Embley. I'm, in, I'm internal medicine. If you guys, I didn't introduce <laughs> me. I'm, I'm internal medicine. That's my specialist. So I'm, I'm like the equivalent of shock trauma when you come to our hospital. And <laughs> if it's a lameness, I don't think that's like shock trauma. So I'll let Dr. Embley. Okay, Dr. Embley. So I'm, and I do lameness, so this is perfect. <laughs> they were smart in how they yes. picked us. It, um, it was coordinated. <laughs> yes. So, I, I mean, I think that you're certainly doing the right thing now because you've already had your vet out. You've already established that there's a little bit of arthritis in that knee. And you've already said that the horse is sound on it and it's really not bothering him. So, you know, we can see radiographic changes, you know, all the time. You can look at radiographs and see some slight arthritis. Just because your horse has the arthritis there doesn't necessarily mean it's bothering the horse at the time. I mean, it is unreal. Sometimes you will see a set of films and think, oh, my God, this must be, must be a cripple horse. Like, I have one horse. He has no stifles. Like, I got him because he had OCDs and his stifles. And literally, if you look at the films, they're just no ridges. He's just kind of minus his stifles. And I would think this is going to be a cripple horse. He is sound as a dollar. I ride him, I jump him, and he is sound as can be, like with the ugliest stifles you've ever seen in your life. So just because a horse has radiographic changes doesn't necessarily mean that those are going to present themselves. Are they more likely to? Yes. Obviously, that's why I own the horse, because... I can fix him if he breaks, but um, with your knee, you know, I think that Adequan is lovely. You know, it, it's one thing that we can do to help them. You know, if he does, 
a monthly Adequan and then just keep an eye on it. You know, I say that if you have a performance horse, especially as you go up the levels or one like you who you know has some changes, it's a really good idea to have your your veterinarian flex your horse twice a year. I think that no problem will get too big if they routinely flex your horse. I tell all my clients, especially, you know, my upper level guys, we meet more often than that. But my routine clients, we like to flex twice a year. So every six months, I just come, go over it. You know, sometimes everything is perfect. And I say, fantastic. But you are going to start noticing subtle things on flexion before you ever notice it riding. So as long as you stay in a good maintenance program with your veterinarian, you can keep your horse performing and going much longer and then staying ahead of problems before they arise. Okay, we have another uh, live audience question. Your name and where you're from, please. Hi, my name is Tori, and I'm also from Wisconsin. There's quite a few of us here <laughs> who've made the trip to Kentucky. So I've had an older horse um, that I've been riding for many, many years, and he is PPID. Um, and he also um, exhibits some insulin resistance. So I've always had him on a like insulin resistance where I do some blood work and testing. And I think there's a little bit of controversy around how to test for that and how to handle it. Um, like I've actually had discussions with my vet over the years as to whether he's insulin resistant or not and what blood work I should do. And I just wanted to hear your opinions on, on that. Sure. And he actually is an insulin resistant horse, I believe he is, um, or has been, that um, he tends to be skinny rather than like an easy keeper like he loses weight when his sugar levels are wacky so hey dr slovis that that is up your alley um but i i'd like to add the, the question of what is the difference between our insulin resistance resistant horse our cushionoid horse or horse with ppid and our equine metabolic syndrome horse excellent question all right, so in regards to your insulin resistance, have you done tests, or is it just shooting from the hip? Why, no. why, ins why do you feel like he's insulin resistant? Okay, so I've been a member of um, a Cushing's like metabolic um, group, like uh -huh. a Yahoo group for years, um, and they've got some opinions and some research that they've done over the years with Eleanor Kellen. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Yeah, yeah, I know. Um, and so they re recommend like taking a glucose and insulin level at the same time and finding a ratio of it. And if you get to a certain percentage of those two numbers, um, where you are at on that spectrum would indicate how insulin resistant your horse is. And so those are the numbers I always ask my, my vet to run for me, and she always shakes her head, oh. <laughs> I mean, we, I do the ACTH also, and so we know clearly that he has, you know, PPID, and he's been on Pergolide for many, many years. But the insulin resistant piece, we have a constant kind of tug of war over it. It's like, well, I'm paying for the test, so I pay for the test, so I can make sure that his diet sure, is sure. okay. So. Okay. So in simplistic terms, when you think about insulin resistance and equine metabolic disease, you know, I just sort of coined those two together. I mean, there's much, there's subclassifications of it, but when you think of equine metabolic disease and Cushing, uh, excuse me, and equine metabolic and insulin resistance, you know, I, I sort of categorize them almost together. Then Cushing's a totally different thing. That's more with a um, abnormality in your pars intermedia, which is a, f a part of your brain that can uh, secrete hormones. So when it comes to uh, insulin resistance, the main thing is, that, so that means what, what ends up happening, just like insulin resistance in humans, if you t have a diet that's high in sugars, which a lot of the grain diets are, or the pasture, depending on the time of year, on the pastures, and what ends up happening is that your horse cannot absorb that glucose properly without insulin, okay? And what ends up happening is that your insulin is just sort of a carrier. It brings glucose into your cells, and then those cells utilize that glucose as energy. It's very simplistic, but that's pretty much easy way to remember it. So what, you're, what you think is going on with your horse is that as you get the sugars, it's resistant to insulin. So therefore, your body has to produce more insulin to bring that glucose into, into the cells. That's what we call insulin resistance. A lot more insulin is needed to bring the glucose or the building blocks into your cell, your energy. Fill up your car, it doesn't take myself to pump it, it may take five Nathans to pump it. You know, that's what insulin does, brings the energy into the cells. Uh, so, the question is, 
you know, why does it occur? There's many, many theories of may, why it may occur. But more importantly, you want to know about the testing. There's several different ways. That just how I like to start off with. You can just do a fasting insulin level. So what you do is you fast your horse overnight and literally fast them. You measure the insulin the next morning. The, comes out to test him he doesn't get any hay or anything and like, his insulin levels are still out the roof and, and well it, we look at the insulin and the glucose levels uh, together okay so yeah so and you, are you getting so another thing you can do is we call it the oral sugar challenge test or test ost it just sounds cool but just oral sugar and, and it's pretty much caro syrup it's caro light syrup there's many generics but just use caro light syrup and you uh, give a horse X amount per body weight. And what you do is you fa fast them. Give, have you done that yet? No, we have not. Oh, okay, so the oral sugar test, so you give them literally high doses of, of sugars. As long as your animal doesn't have laminitis or there are any other. Well, he tends to be factors. laminitic, which is why, like, I think when he is out of whack, he yeah. gets ouchy. So for years, I've controlled his diet, and he hasn't had a lot of abscesses or other feet issues. But I, I haven't had a problem of a horse getting laminitis, you know, unless they're bounding and, and they, you know, if you give them any bit of sugar, they have a history of getting laminitis, then I may not do the test, but it's very rare. I'll give them that, that light caro syrup, and then what ends up happening, the veterinarian comes on out, like you administer in the morning. The veterinarian will come on out 60 to 90 minutes later, draw a test, and they can look at your glucose levels, look at your insulin levels, and get an idea of how things are going, and that's how I would try to diagnose your, your, your horse that way. If you want to do it, it's more of a dynamic test. You give them sugar, see how they respond. And then there's many other testing beyond that, but that's just some simplistic tests you can take a look at. Because the biggest thing with equine metabolic disease, have an excess of fat that, that goes on. Because if you can't utilize that glucose, you gotta do something with it, you're gonna produce fat. You know, that's why you get you know, insulin resistance. That's why you call it equine metabolic. You gotta do something with that energy can't utilize it, you're gonna start making it into fat. Well, fat itself is an organ, and we're learning so much about it. It can release factors, inflammatory markers, inflammatory uh, aspect from the fat itself that can cause oxidative stress to your brain and can maybe predispose these horses into becoming cushionoid. So maybe these animals that are cushionoid at a young disease, they could have equimetabolic disease that perpetuated Cushing's. You usually think Cushing's is an older disease, but some of these, I'm, I'm seeing it as young, you know, 10. You know, younger pup. Now, is it because you're equine metabolic? So, you know, great question. Thank you. We have another question from our live audience here at Pony Club Festival. Hi, I'm Yvette from Washington, D.C. Um, I have a 28-year-old thoroughbred, uh, and he's still in work, uh, but I got the report from the dentist that his molars are wearing down. So trying to figure out how much dental care as well as dietary changes I should consider, um, what are sort of the things that I should be readjusting in his world, besides taking away his cookies, certainly don't do that. <laughs> uh, Dr. Embley, would you like to take that one? We can share, but I, I will start. I have a 27-year-old thoroughbred, and he's cribbed his whole life, and he has no front teeth because he's cribbed them all away. And um, his molars are also almost non-existent. And so he eats, I really enjoy, like the senior, the equine senior. I mean, you can actually make it soup. I have some horses in my practice, old horses, who've actually had the odontoclastic disease where we've actually had to take their front teeth. And in one case, I think we, um, Dr. Tanner, he's one of our, our dentist um, veterinarians, I can't remember how many teeth he took out. It was something like 13 or 14. I was like, well, would you leave any in that horse's mouth? And, and he didn't leave so many, but that horse has existed just fine. Her tongue hangs out her mouth because her front teeth, can, she has none, and they can't hold her tongue in. So she's, I think, in her 30s, and her tongue hangs out of her mouth. So, you know, <laughs> that's a little funny. But she lives on Equine Senior, and she actually, with her lips, she still goes out, she still grazes, and she's still able to get some pasture. So she looks fantastic. And um, actually, in her case, because of the disease, she wasn't actually being, she wasn't able to eat because her mouth was so painful. But um, you can, um, 
I am a big proponent of the equine senior because you can make it soupy if needed and they can still get all the nutrition that they need. So if you look, I said like Purina who has done a ton of research, they're a great product. I use them, but any of those senior feeds, um, they are made to be like a balanced, complete ration, um, in some of these horses who have really bad mouths. And so, Dr. Emily, you, you mentioned there a balanced, complete ration. Can you explain the difference between a complete ration and a concentrate ration? Or does uh, Dr. Slovis want to take Dr. that Slovis one? That's a Dr. Slovis question. Okay. He's there, our nutritionist here today. Yeah, so there you go. Um, you got to be a jack of all trades if you're uh, an internist. Yeah, internist. Yep. All right, so when it comes to uh, equine nutrition, okay, so a complete feed, the basic thing is, you know, read the package. Most complete feeds would be a heat-processed pelleted feed. They're not going to be cereal grains. You think of your concentrates, those are more of your cereal grains. They're not pelleted. That's your corn, that's your oats, that's your barley. It's really tough to make that a complete feed. Because to make a complete feed, you're going to have to heat process it. It becomes almost like, um, you know, uh, a, a thick, you know, milkshake going through the processing. And, and that's where they add the vitamins, the minerals. They add the extra um, fiber in there. And that tends to be a complete feed. So first of all, just look at it. Not every pelleted feed is a complete feed. But most importantly, read the package. It will say, this can be used as a complete feed. And that's the most important thing. Read your package, and that can give you the answers more, important, more than anything. But you know, if, if he says something's a complete feed, and it's a concentrated feed, that means not a pelleted feed, you know, talk to your nutritionist, talk to your vet to see if they mislabeled it. Uh, there may be some products that I don't know of in different regions of the United States or the world that, that is a complete feed, but most of them would be a heat-processed pelleted feed. Thank you, Dr. Slovis. I think we have time for one more question from our live audience here. Can you tell us uh, your name and where you're from? Hi, I'm Catherine, and I'm from North Carolina. And I had a quick question. I've got a mare. She's not really a senior. She's about 14 now. But she's got some arthritic changes, and our veterinarian has been giving her Osphos injections for that for, you know, about four times a year for a while. And it's mostly worked pretty well. I just was wondering what your opinions were on using Osphos to treat sort of this arthritic kind of all over a little bit of it thing. Dr. Embley? So I have used Osphos primarily for navicular changes, and I've also used it for some kissing spine. And that, uh, and also for some really obscure lamenesses where we couldn't quite figure out, you know, exactly. The thing that I think probably works the best with Osphos is that it, they have shown like in, in human medicine and with studies, you know, with um, women with osteoporosis um, and for building bone mass that when administered, it gives a great analgesic effect. So just that the pain, it takes away a lot of your pain. The analgesia means, you know, pain relief. And so I think sometimes the, the biggest bump you get from Osphos is not necessarily what it's doing, but a, an amazing pain um, relief because I feel like you sort of see that sometimes that the horses will be sound for a couple months and then the osphos sort of wears off. Um, so, you know, I, I think that it's very important to um, block a horse if a horse is actually lame, like actually get a diagnosis and find out exactly what you are treating um, and treat that sometimes rather than a blanketing. You know, it, I don't know if you're using, do you have a specific problem for which you're using the Osphos? Well, she had a, a very funny lameness in one of her front feet and we just never could tell. I mean, we tried everything and it was off again, on again, off again, on again. We even did MRIs on her. And nothing on the MRI? A slight bulging of the navicular bursa. Okay. So like a navicular bursitis, sort of. But, I mean, and that's what it's for. Like navicular, that's where I say I use it. I think it does, it does wonders. And so if you are finding that that is keeping her sound, then, yeah, then, you know, I wouldn't have a problem using it. Do you, uh, I, I was going to say, 
the only other thing, and especially with her getting older, I will say that I'm very paranoid. I think the internist should probably be proud of me. As a sport horse veterinarian, before I use Osphos or Tildren, if my horse is over about eight years old, I pull a blood on all of them and I look at their kidney function because I'm not going to be frying any kidneys in the field. And in fact, I was so paranoid that I usually run fluids on both, both my Osphos and my Tildren, unless I know that that horse has received you know, the Osphos before with, with no clinical, no clinical problems from that, because I just rather, um, it, cause it, it, it is very hard on the kidney. I mean, the, it, the kidney takes a hit. So I like to, um, I'm just very, very careful and would like to go ahead and preload my kidney with lots of fluids. Thank you, Dr. Embley. So a uh, couple times we've mentioned that uh, Dr. Slovis is an internal medicine specialist and that uh, Dr. Embley does a lot of lameness and sport horse treatment. Does everyone in our audience, all the pony clubbers here, do you know the difference between an internist and someone who might work on a horse more in, for lameness with your vets? So we have some nodding of heads. Could we explain? Uh, briefly, because we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, Dr. Slovis, what is an internist focus? So pretty much an internal focus is not lameness, <laughs> nothing with the scalpel blade, and I do everything else. No, an internist, unfortunately, in, in equine veterinary medicine, an internist, I gotta be the neurologist, I gotta be the gastroenterologist, I gotta be the pulmonologist, ophthalmologist, you know, you gotta be a jack of all trades. So if it comes with your internal organs, that's what I deal with. Now there's a lameness issue, the lameness specialist uh, says Dr. Embley would take a look at it and if she can't find the problem and then she thinks, boy, this could be a weird neurological problem that's making the horse look lame, then I'll get involved and then we'll tag team it together. But that's pretty much in a nutshell, that's what an internal medicine uh, specialist does. Um, okay. Thank you, Dr. Slovis, for you're explaining welcome. that for us. Okay, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Drs. Embley and Slovis for joining us and our audience for being here. We'll be returning to our regular Ask the Horse Live format and schedule on Thursday, August 10th at 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And for that Ask the Horse Live, we're going to be talking about equine genetic diseases. You can visit thehorse.com slash askthehorse after July 28th to register for this event, or you can look for registration links in our free online newsletters after that date. Until then, from all of us at The Horse, thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a great weekend and rest of your festival.